All right. Um, so uh, then you talked a lot the first week, and I talked a lot the second week, so this is your week to talk a lot. Um, just out of curiosity, what can you remember? Can you remember anything from the past couple of weeks? If you could say it in a word or two, that would be good. What's the matter? No, you can't, because you're all old. Yeah, why would, you, why would you be able to remember anything? Sorry. <coughs> you're older than you used to be. You're all older than you used to be. So can you remember anything at all, anything at all, in a word or two? So the best thing about your prayers is? Yeah, the rest of the, okay, good. So first you get to cooperate with Jesus. So Jesus does good stuff. Look at that, money appeared while I was gone. That's good. Um, yeah, the first thing is, is that Jesus loves you so much, he lets you, he shares his work with you. And of course, you know, get that straightened out the Lutheran way so you don't have to lose sleep about it. But, you know, you can't do anything on your own, but once you're redeemed, the Lord brings you into his work. You just heard it in the gospel. You're my friends and you share in my work. You do what I command you. I love you. You love me back. And love is, love is action, so there you go. That's easy stuff. One of the things you get to do um, with Jesus is you get to pray. He cooperates with your work. Okay, so next thing, what else? Yes, you get to give it to the king. So you can, you get, you're, you're part of the divine household, and you get to give God advice, not on principle. The principle is that, you know, he's going to save every last person and bring every last person home to Eden. He's very clear about what he wants. That is utterly unchanging. That is the thing about God that does not change. However, strategy changes all the time. So we'll blow up Sodom and Gomorrah if we can't find 100 rice. Okay, it can be 50. No, we'll get down to 20, 10. We'll stop. See, strategy changes all the time, which is why sometimes people think their prayers are an empty exercise. You can actually change God's mind. You can move God around. You can nudge him and push him and ask him. Um, and sometimes even, you know, you get things that maybe um, wouldn't be the immediate best, but in the way, you know, kind of along the way, you learn, you know, that I maybe shouldn't ask for things that I shouldn't ask for. And what protects you for asking for, what protects you from asking for things you shouldn't ask for? What protects you? Uh, the conscience first, but I'd love something more strong because I'm so nervous about your conscience. I couldn't, <laughs> what could go, things could go wrong. So, but your conscience is right. A pure conscience is actually exactly the right answer because a pure conscience is the will of God implanted on your heart, right? So if you can keep it totally pure, that's exactly right. The Holy Spirit, but then he kind of comes and goes and you can't get a grip on him. So how do you know when you're praying for something right? That's right, but so many people get their will confused up with the Lord's will. You know, the names, thank God we got something objective here. None of the other things are wrong. The conscience is right because that's, the Holy Spirit is right because he's part of the Trinity. His will is right because the Father knows what's cooking. However, you know, the ultimate thing is the name. If you pray in my name, then you can have it. Still with me? Yes, Carol. Doesn't that mean more than, what the, what's that? Doesn't that? Yes. Yes, I mean much more than the tagline. Thank you very much. What I mean is you spend your whole life excavating the names. So this Lent, you know, pick a name or two and figure out what they mean and then pray for everything that's inside that name. And I gave you the very small print list of, you know, 10,000 names last week in the fat pack. I got four of these left. I don't want to take them. Does anybody want these? There you go. So you got, you know, you have a whole range of the names. Um, and you, you, if you can find it in a name, you can have it. All you need is the million-dollar name. Then you can have a million dollars. That's all you need. In the <laughs>
I got really because when I hear Mary, I hear Gaynig. I have I have a I have money down that Gaynig somehow both his first two kids are named Mary. I got money down that says this is yeah they are. They have Mary, one is Mary Claire. No, Claire Mary, and then Emma Mary, Claire Maria. Sorry. So it's just a matter. It's just a matter of you know he'll end up giving her three names if he has to to get that in there. There's not going to be any. No. But any second now, any second now, you know, as long as they can get the garage door fixed, then they'll get the, I believe they know it's a girl, don't they? It's a girl. Yeah, that should be interesting. All right, so, um, and so that's as far as you are, all right? Now, um, two things, and things that people sort of never uh, believe, or but maybe should believe, if you've got a Bible in front of you, um, spin it open to Romans 8. You use this passage for another reason, which is to comfort yourself when everything goes straight to hell in your life, which is a very, very good reason. You got a Bible in front of you? Are there some lying around, or we just give you hymnals? Uh, there's Bibles back there on the back, on that back bit if you need one. If you want to grab one, that's all good. Romans 8, you know this is a very common, you know, all things work together of the good of those who love God, which is um, fantastic and absolutely right and virtually a miracle that God could knit your whole life together in a way that blesses you. But um, you got it? Romans 8, does he got a page, anybody got a page number? 944, thank you. Um, look at Romans 8, uh, 26. So over here was the answer about the Holy Spirit. But um, likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. So when you're weak, the Holy Spirit remains strong. But we do not know how to pray as we ought. So we never get our prayers exactly right. But you remember we started by saying, um, and this is the thing that John Kleinig is able to do so well, is not to make you feel guilty about your failures in your prayer life. And one of the things you know, that he said is you, you, some of the greatest growth that will happen in your life is when your prayers fail. And when you can't say your prayers. That um, on the fat pack, on that right on the top right, there's something from a monk who basically says, saying your prayers is like uh, fighting to the death. On the top right, did you see this? There is no effort comparable to prayer to God. I mean, prayer is very, very hard. And repeated prayer is very hard. The discipline is very hard. Why is it so hard? In fact, whenever you want to pray, hostile demons try to interrupt you. So your prayers get interrupted. It's not just that it's you have trouble praying. There's, there's external forces working. Because your prayers can change the world. You know, your, your prayers can change reality. Your prayers can change the course of life. So, um, you know, push against the world. The world pushes back. It's basic stuff. Get your kid baptized. The devil puts a target on him. Say your prayers. Um, the demons respond. Uh, you know, take a stand against evil. Uh, evil pushes back. Of course, they know that nothing but prayer to God entangles them. So why do you get pushback? Because you're frustrating what's evil. You frustrate evil. The world is a push-and-pull place. Someday it won't be a push-and-pull place. The great thing about Eden is that it's holy. But until then, the world is a push and a pull. And even though Jesus says you reap what you sow, in the interim between your reaping and your sowing, there can be a great deal of pain. So, certainly, when you undertake any other good work and persevere in it, you obtain rest. But prayer is the battle all the way to the last breath, right? 
And that's, um, you know, the thing is, though, you have, to, you have to weigh in all those verses about purified by fire and um, the Lord stands by you and you're Jesus' friend and things are working okay. So, we don't know how we ought to pray, verse 26, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. So even when you can't pray, the Holy Spirit is praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for what you need. This is great comfort, because in just a moment, we're going to turn to Hebrews, where it says Jesus spends his days praying too. So there's this remarkable thing going on in heaven, where all day long, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are talking to the Heavenly Father about what would be good for you. What would be good for Mary? That's how they spend their days. What do you think about Mary? The blue hat or the white hat? I like the blue hat. Let's go with the blue today. It goes with the slacks. Okay, so here we go. It's like that all day long. And this is why, of course, then, then when you know, people sort of, what do the saints do all day? Well, they do what Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they do what Jesus do. They do what the Holy Spirit do. What do they do? They pray all day. You can't have such a narrow definition of prayer that you don't see that it encompasses all of life. It's this constant bidding and constant action that your life would be good. You know, if the, if the saints weren't praying for you, you'd be done for. So, I mean, so there it is in the text. All day long, what the Holy Spirit does is he sort of susses out the deepest things in your soul, the things you would never admit, the things you won't even admit to yourself, the things that you're blind to. And he prays that, thing, that, that, that your life would be better. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's one of his primary actions. Constant prayer for somebody else, which now you need to tuck away because when Jesus says to you, do whatever I command, one of the things he tells you to do is to pray for other people. So the Holy Spirit is praying for you, and then you pray for other people. And you remember, long ago, far away, this is one of the first things I ever said um, to you when I came, which is, in the perfect church, I have no needs because you care for all of them. And in the perfect church, you have no needs because the rest of us care for all of them. That's why in the church, nobody can ever go hungry in the church because everybody cares for everybody else. That's why um, you know, nobody can go without in the church because everyone cares for everybody. That's how the community was meant to be. I mean, that's, that's most seen in the Acts 2 community where everybody turned everything into the church and then the church made sure that everybody was cared for. That was the practical implication of that. But it comes right out of these prayers where you spend all your time praying for me and I spend all my time praying for you. Why do we do that? Because the Holy Spirit spends all his time praying for me, right? And all his time praying for you. And now just spin over to Hebrews, um, if you would. So go right in your Bible about three-eighths of an inch. Hebrews 7.25. So that's going to be like page 1261 in your book. What do you think? That's the, what's the over-under on that? 1,005. Small print. Okay, 1,005. Go to Hebrews 7.25. Now, just this is review too. So partly I want you to be able to, you don't have to do memory work, but you want to see how the puzzle pieces fit together. So what does a priest do? What's a priest's job? You're a royal priesthood. Everybody wants to embrace that. You're a royal priesthood. That's great. What's the two things that a priest spends his day doing? Making sacrifices and praying. Praying and sacrificing. Yeah. Praying at the offices one day gets instituted. So a priest prays, and then often that's mediation. That's the very first thing we talked about. So even if, um, you know, Paul talks about this. He said if you're married and your wife won't pray or your husband won't pray... You pray, and they're sanctified in that prayer. See, so even if you're not praying or you're not praying, I'm praying for you. 
Or if I'm not praying, you're praying for me. That's your job as a priest. That you're always and ever praying for other people. Look at Romans 12 where it says your body is a living sacrifice. You know, what is a living sacrifice? It's a sacrifice that acts, that does. The Romans 12 is a, is a long description of what it means to be a priest. So, you know, this thing about we're royal priests, God bless you, get busy. Because that means you live your life praying for other people and it, you live your life sacrificing for other people. So every action is for somebody else, which is exactly what the Holy Spirit does all day. He prays for you. He watches for you. He look, looks into your soul. He brings the things you can't even bear to admit to the Father. He gets those forgiven. He comes back to you. He forgives you. He illumines you. And He sends you out into the world to do whatever Jesus does. If you're my friends, you do what I command. Make sense? You know all of this, right? But we're just sort of, I just want to make sure because before we go to the next thing. And then just sort of the other, um, this is um, Hebrews 7. If you notice, the very first word uh, of Hebrews 7 is Melchizedek, just like on the pillow up front. So if you want to go um, look about Melchizedek, there it is. But go down to Hebrews, um, go to 23. The former priests, so Melchizedek and everybody after him, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. This is very important. This, this is all how we talk about the pastorate too. You're a pastor for a while, you die. You're a priest, you're, you die. When you're in the office, you do the work of the office. What's the work? But he holds his priesthood permanently. This is Jesus because he never dies. So you're, you're a pastor as long as you're alive. You're a priest as long as you're alive. Jesus never dies, and so he's the high priest forever. So what does Jesus spend his time doing? Praying and sacrificing, although the sacrifice on Calvary was so big, it never needs to be done again. It reappears in the Eucharist, but it doesn't have to be redone. Okay, So the sacrifice once for all, Hebrews makes a big point of that. And then what's the other thing that he does? Consequently... He is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, mediator, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to pray for you. So Jesus spends all this time praying for you. So what's happening in heaven? Um, read Revelation. It's much more about this eternal Eucharist, the liturgy going on and on and on than it is about the fiery lake. It's much more about you know, this long, tense Eucharist at the end of the world that saves everything. And so the saints are under the altar, I think it's Revelation 9, looking down saying, they're praying for you. How long are you going to let this go on? How long will you let this go on? They're, they're talking to, 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 to Christ and the Father. How long will this go? They're begging that the world would come to an end so that everyone that they love will be gathered up into heaven, you know. So even there, they're, you know, doing their priestly work. But part of what you need to know is that Jesus, Jesus spends his day praying for you. The Holy Spirit spends his day praying for you, which is very, very encouraging because their prayers don't fail. You know, very often our prayers fail. Very often we start and we're interrupted. We're interrupted by ourselves. We're interrupted by the demons. We're interrupted by a number of things. You know, we're interrupted by our own sloth. We're interrupted so often and we come back to it, and we're forgiven, and then we give it another push, and we grow, and we do better, and we get stronger, and our prayers are answered. But constantly, the Holy Spirit 
and um, Jesus himself pray for us. So it's a very, very nice thing that's going on. Okay, pause. That was all just review. How was that? Now you should be carrying that around in your head, I hope. I hope that you'll think to yourself, the Lord loves me desperately. The Lord forgives me and blesses me. The Lord invites me to share in his work. He invites me to say my prayers and make my sacrifices. My prayers and my sacrifices are done in his name. My prayers and my sacrifices are done for the sake of someone else. And if you need consolation, you remind yourself that everybody else in the room is making their prayers and their sacrifices for you. So if Jan comes and she's despondent, what I should be able to say is, everybody else in this room is praying for you, right? You having a bad day? Everybody else in this room is praying for you. And everybody else is looking out for everybody else. That's a remarkable thing to be a part of, that everybody else is looking out for you. Not in their own subjective way, but in a way that, you know, was sized too deep for words, utterly according to the will of the Father. Does that make sense? You okay? And that's, that's only as far as we've, we've been now. All right, any, any questions about that? So you just sort of, that's sort of the importance of it. Not in the sense that, um, you know, like this, but kind of look at the other people at your table. I mean, if you love the people at your table, you'll pray for them. I mean, in the way that you feed your kids or care for them, move around. Yes, Mary. <laughs> so there's three things there. What's a priest first? Yes. A priest is somebody who's set apart for particular tasks. Yeah, in this sense, since Jesus, everybody who's baptized is a priest. You remember this great thing that we read? You're a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, God's own people. We read that every Christmas, right? Christ invites everybody in. So everybody is given, and we're going to talk about this in a second, everybody's given a task, and we're going to talk about what that task looks like in just a second. Your task is to pray and to make sacrifices. Pray for yourself and pray for others, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that's your job. Um, You're very bold to sort of say these kinds of things in front of other people. I'm going to ask you a question or two, and you can answer or not answer, okay? Um, Now, why is it that you would ask God to leave you alone again? What what prompts a prayer that would say, why don't you leave me alone? There's certainly them in the scriptures. I'm just kind of asking for you. If you want to say, if you don't want to say, just let it go, and I can answer anyway a little bit. Is there a reason you tell them to let it, is it just too much, or you didn't like the direction it was going? Yeah. But just pause just a second there, because I know some of that, so I just want to ask a question. But do you see that as coming from God's hand? Because my, my, my reaction would be, I would think that it would be just the opposite, that God never does you evil, right? So I would think you'd want to be pulled closer to God, and you'd want to say to everybody else to leave me alone. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so just start with this, that nothing evil ever comes from God's hand. He only means to bless you, and he loves you as his own. Right? So when he sees you, he sees Jesus, right? You got the Eucharist in you. and There you go. And you've been forgiven, and you carry the Eucharist in you. Okay, good. So probably praying that God would leave you alone, you might want to flip that just a little bit, just nudge it a little bit, and you could see if he could leave. He would stay near you, and the things that trouble you would leave you alone. Okay? So just kind of pause there. Then the last thing about, about praying for um, 
somebody else's death. Um, I actually understand that prayer, uh, but I would be cautious of it. Yeah, and I actually know, I know you have a lot of circumstances that would make those prayers uh, rational. I wouldn't go all the way to legitimate. I would go all the way to rational because it appears to be a way out. The danger of that is that the life and death only belong to God himself. Good. So you might um, just pause and ask him to solve it. But in this case, you may not want to advise how to solve it because there's no sort of um, prayer. There's no name that will let you say, I wish that these particular people would, unless you have some very specific circumstance. So, and that would be very, I'm afraid of prayers like that. Um, I'm, 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 yeah, it's a scary thing to, because you, the problem with a prayer like that is you got to be all in 100% right, and that's very difficult for us to do. And the other thing is, remember this thing about that God doesn't, that Jesus doesn't have any enemies, so you don't have any enemies? So regardless of what, yeah, and he'll deal with that. And so whenever you, that's his problem, and when you pray about that, you, this is partly the the Hess comment very helpfully of thy will be done. Um, you deal with Satan in the way that you deal with him. So even in the Job story, for example, um, the Lord is turning Satan loose on Job. At the same time, Job is praying that Satan be, take, be pushed away. So Job's prayers and God's prayers are at odds with each other. right? And that's an extraordinarily difficult thing in real time to go through. Nevertheless, Job's prayers are rational and legitimate. They're proper prayer. Spare me from this. And eventually the Lord does do that, but it's extraordinarily painful, right? So at the, at the Job point, you just comfort yourself with the fact that the Holy Spirit is praying for you and Jesus is praying for you. They know what's best and nothing takes you out of their hands. That's what you pray. That makes sense? Yeah. Wisdom isn't cheap and we pay for it with pain. <laughs> Wisdom isn't cheap and we pay for it with pain. You know? I might, although usually when I say, I know what you're trying to say, you say, no, let me explain. <laughs> but maybe that's just our particular circumstance. Um, well, you do tend to get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, uh, not, not, um, not exactly different. Here's the problem. If you read, we read the bit from John 15 or 14 this morning, but in that whole section, he basically says... If they did this to me, they're going to do it to you. So really, hanging around with Jesus is kind of a dangerous proposition. Okay, It's, a, you get, it's painful. It's extraordinarily painful. But there's some really good payoffs, like you do get stronger, you do get better, and you have the consolation of knowing you're doing what's true and right and good. right? And you also know that when you do what you're asked to do, it pulls in the direction of Eden. And someday, you know, while it's a delayed gratification, uh, you will, in fact, be more right than you could ever be. So, but, that, and that, but that's the reason you need to pray for the things that the Lord asks you to pray for, anything in his name, and not just kind of capricious stuff. I mean, you actually don't know whether it would be good for you to have a million bucks. Money is the great ruiner of most people. I mean, as you want to ruin somebody, give them a lot of money. I mean, most people can't. Some people can't handle it. Most people can't handle it. The proof is all around us. You know, you need to go no farther than the church where people who have tons of money are miserly. 
there's lots of things we can't handle, or the destruction of our enemies. Sometimes, you know, it would seem good to us that people were destroyed, but um, that's not our business, you know, and we don't see... There's this great, you know, I'm run, for Transfiguration, I'm going to run you again the comment from Rowan Williams where um, the older I get, the more sense it makes, where he says, none of us really know the meaning of our own lives. And only in the light of the Transfiguration, or frankly, the light of our death, only then do we know if our life mattered. Because then, only then do we know what God really thought about us. And only then do we see how all the pieces fit together. So, um, see, part of, the, part of the problem with us is our great overconfidence that we th- are so sure we know what is good for us and we're so certain about what the next course is. When in reality, um, you know, unless you're unbelievably pure-hearted, uh, you pretty much don't have any idea what to do on your own. So your life simply boils down to living in the imitation of Christ. If you imitate Christ, then you know you're solid. What does that mean? Say your prayers, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, remember that you'll reap what you sow, cling fast to your baptism in the Eucharist, touch holy things. Those things are certain. You're, you're welcome as a member of the royal household to advise God on strategy. But, um, you, know, you know, at some point, God makes the decision and you don't. I mean, that's actually, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, how I don't know that many people who are good with, um, i kind of been watching in different venues. I actually don't know that many people who are good at engaging the other side of the argument. Maybe I'm just sensitized to it because this happens whenever political arguments come. When you watch political discourse, I mean, it just is, most of it, what you see is a lie. It's a lie in this sense, kind of the character assassination. You're a horrible person. Nobody ever says what the other guy says, you know. They, nobody can tell the truth because everybody wants to win too much, right? So we can't have a reasoned discourse because nobody wants to be reasonable. Nobody wants to see things in the light of day. And even as I watch how people engage, it's very difficult to have an honest discussion. And of course, all you need to do is have cable TV to w- and watch two guys talk over each other at, for 90 seconds, and then we call that an interview and we go to commercial break. I mean, that is, that is chaos. It's madness, you know? But even in families, watch in families or watch with friends. Watch your kids. See if people actually know how to agree or disagree and see if people can, can then be subject to authority. Somebody has to decide. So forget about whether you're a Democrat or Republican. The president sits in a room and all these very smart people say, this is what we need to do. And at the end of the day, he has to say, we'll do A or we'll do B, right? And then it's everybody else's job to get on board, right? It's not like a voters meeting in the church. Your ultimate voters meeting would be, pure-heartedly, people would say, I think A is the best strategy. I think B is the best strategy. Then you, this is how voters are supposed to work. Then you vote, and then whatever wins, as long as it's pure-hearted, everybody gets on board and does it, right? I mean, someday maybe you'll belong to that church. Uh, you know, 
But what usually happens is people then, you know, they may know I'm not going to be is what I wanted, and if I don't get my way, then I got to, you know, whatever. So but my point is we're not very good at this. So you're free to, you're free to be, you're part of the household. You're free to do your best. You're free to give advice. If your advice isn't listened to, you're still part of the household, right? Does that make sense? This is part of being under authority. If you don't get what you want, you don't say there's no God, or you don't say God doesn't love me, or you don't say he never listens to me. You say, well, I can't always kind of tell what my life is. I have a bad perspective on my own life. It's very, it's very difficult to stand outside yourself and look at yourself. Doesn't that make sense? We are the worst. Self-deception is what we're best at. It's one of the best. Yeah, denial, self-deception, all the ways that people are wrecked. It's very hard to stand outside yourself and see what's really in your heart, to see how other people see you. It's very difficult to do this. Yes, please. Yes, right. That is true. Yes. Often we don't have a clue. Yes, often we don't. Right. Yes. Yes, that's, yes I, I completely agree with that. And Jesus is, you're very clever. Jesus is different. You see what happens is, this is the whole story of Jesus. Exactly. Exactly, because we don't want the pain of that. It's a painful process to be refined. Actually, that, but he, he does, in fact, do things. He does, he does do things to you. Good. So you're going to get this. Good. So you're going to get a margin comment in about three weeks that will say something like, love is always meant to teach, and if it's not teaching, it's not love. So that's how you know. What, what comes into your hand, it, it does, it's either meant to help you or hurt you. It's meant to refine you or destroy you. But the problem is they can look the same. It's very easy for them to look the same. When you're in the midst of pain, you can't tell the difference, right? You're troubled, you're hurt, you're sick, somebody dies. The question, the existential question is, is this meant to save me or kill me? You know? And regularly in the scriptures, you have people who say, what are you doing? Are you trying to kill me or are you trying to help me? In fact, Elijah, at the end of his life, what does he say? You Remember? He's like, this is just too much for me. I've just had enough. Just kill me now. And what's interesting is the Lord does, in fact, doesn't kill him, but he does end his life. He's no longer a prophet, and he no longer is alive on earth. He does take him away in rather spectacular fashion. <laughs> but he is, he basically says, I can't bear it anymore. Right? Okay, and we, have, we often have that reaction to the pain in our own lives. But there's this utter confidence. So, so, I mean, so let's just push it out then. So trouble comes to you. How do you know that it's meant to refine you and not destroy you? How do you know? Partly, although when you're so broken, sometimes you're reduced to, I don't know what choice to make. So see if you can get an answer that's outside you. Right, and now you see why it's so, why this is why American society is so difficult for us, is because we have to do everything on our own and sort it all out, and I'm autonomous and I won't be under any authority. Yes, come to any funeral where people love deeply. People can't pray. 
they, they, they cry. They are silent. They're completely stymied. They're broken. So how do you know? I mean, this is an extraordinarily important question. How do you know that in any given circumstance, how do you know that God is trying to bless you rather than destroy you? How do you know? How do you know it's refinement and not the end of you? How do you know? Yes, please. He's always trying to bless you, but how do you know he's always trying to bless you? But how do you, how do you know that? Because even you, you're... I, I know you do, but here's the thing. Um, good. You're an extraordinarily strong person and an extraordinarily strong Christian. I hope you go the rest of your life, and I hope you never change that answer. But there is every possibility... And this particularly comes, even the strongest Christians go into darkness. Yes, good. So uh, without probing that darkness, because that can be very painful and very private, in the midst of that darkness, the thought can occur to you, is the Lord about to do me in? Or is he, there's a variation of how you can talk about this. You can talk about it as, is he here for me? Is he here for my good? Or have I crossed him, and does he mean to destroy me? So what's the, how, what's the objective answer that you always know that he doesn't mean to destroy you? Because God is love. He is love, but that, is he love for me? How do you know he's love for me? For me, or for you, but for me, because I'm more interested in me than you right now. So, uh, good, and, what ha- and how did the dynas get on you? Yes, thank you. The objective. You always end up appealing to the objective. How do I know that, that, how do I know that, you know this, but you have to actually bring it, that was a long, that was a long nervous period for me. That was a long six minutes, okay? So here's the thing. The way that you know that God doesn't destroy, it's Luther's great answer. You're a child of God. Nevertheless, I'm baptized. I was made a child of God. How do you know? Because Jesus baptized me. Because Jesus put his Eucharist into me. He put his own body and blood into me. He's indestructible, so I'm indestructible. It, it really depends on the objective act that Jesus does, not that you do. Because at some point you'll be so destroyed, you won't know which way is up. I hope it doesn't happen, but it always does. Yes. Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. Yes, it is. Yes, exactly right. The problem is... Exactly, but the problem is when the pain is so intense. So if you've been around people who've had a very debilitating illness, when the pain is so intense, it's extraordinarily difficult to keep that focus when you're in pain that can't be stopped. Or when you're, um, um, you know, when you're near death. And, you know, people, you can say all you want about going to a blessed death, but when you get up close to death, it's a different deal especially when it's your own death, right? So what you need is an objective judgment, an objective consolation on your life. How do I know that God doesn't want to destroy me? Because he baptized me and adopted me as his own child, and he, I wear his same name, and if there's anything God does, he protects his family. Or alternately, because the body and blood of Jesus is inside me, St. Paul, we carry the wounds of Jesus in our body. So when God looks at me, he sees the Eucharist that I got this morning. That's the primary thing that he sees. He sees that I carry Jesus inside me, 
and he won't destroy Jesus. That's Easter. Jesus, we had a go at destroying Jesus, and instead, death didn't destroy him. He destroyed death, and God, Christ is indestructible, so I'm indestructible. Does that make sense? So it's very important. This is, it's very important to know that God is in any circumstance for you and not against you. And you know these for you, not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done to you. You know that. I just wish it would come a little faster and off your tongue. Sooner, just because it'd be good for you. It'd be good for you. Because otherwise you don't know, because things, things that happen to you that refine you, and, and they can look exactly the same. I mean, you walk out into the street and get hit by a car today, and you get, you know, all, you know that's a thing that can refine you. It also can be, you know, the end of you. I mean, and here's the other thing, the ultimate push, and I've said this to you, and you know this as soon as I say it, which is, the ultimate blessing in life is your death, yes. So if you are refined by it, or if you die from it, the result for you is the same, because Christ has baptized you and put his body and blood into you. So your ultimate blessing, your ultimate healing is your death. But that's very difficult to say if you have tragic or painful or sudden or prolonged death in all those circumstances. And that's what a pastor and, now let's get back to you as a priest, that's what you do for other people. You sort of rally around them and say, you know, don't forget the Lord is for you and never against you. Does that make sense? It's really important for you to hold on to that. Yes, please. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. No, right. Right, yes. Right. Yes, right, exactly. Good. Yeah, that's actually very, very helpful. Um, yeah, everything in the image of God. Did we just... Oh, I was reading something. At some point, you're going to... Did we just read the text about in the epistle about have your life conform to the image of God? Did we just read that? Yeah. No, it's coming then. So, anyway, let's do one last thing, and then we need to move on to a different sheet for next time. Just turn your sheet over to the back. Um, so, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and wakeful with thanksgiving. Um, you remember this, of course, because we did the Eucharistia thing, but the but the connection between grace and thanksgiving uh, is always unbroken. Um, but part of part of what happens is you you, you need to you need to stay awake, and um, that's difficult for us. We can be lulled to sleep and not even know that we're asleep. That's partly why the the discipline, uh, whatever it takes, coming to the Eucharist in the morning, using a book, setting your alarm, having your iPhone ping, the discipline of having a time that you say your prayers, the discipline of it. In the way that you wouldn't skip too many, you wouldn't skip too many meals and, and survive. In the same way, you wouldn't skip your prayers too much uh, and survive. So part of it is that we need to just um, stay awake. And regularly, you know, the Scripture talks about unbelief as being asleep. You just you just don't have your eyes open. You just don't see the reality. You're just not um, active and ready to go. And so, um, what happens then as you become more wakeful? and more awake, uh, you actually sort of see the world for what it is. When you see the world for what it is, you first become more thankful for all the things that God has given for you, and so this connection here between grace and thankfulness. But you also begin to be empathetic for the people around you. Um, 
it's terribly important to hold both of those things dear. Otherwise, you remember where we started was um, many people's prayers are just stacking up anxieties. If you, don't, if you don't pay attention, if you don't sort of get your eyes up and look around at all the billions of good things that God has given you, um, it debilitates your thanksgiving. But if you look around, I mean, even if you look at yourself, I mean, it's quite a remarkable thing, this group. You're a very faithful group. Or, or I, this morning, morning's Eucharist, there were probably 40 people there for morning Eucharist on a Friday. You know, I, it just is, it stuns me that anybody comes back day after day. And then you, you look up and there's 40 or 45 people there for morning Eucharist. That's the most remarkable thing. If you just sort of open your eyes, or that Val's down there with, you know, 25 kids and they're all sitting there in the candlelight and they're all talking about, you know, the way the Lord is blessed. You sort of open your eyes to the blessings you've been given. It prompts your prayers. You become very thankful. But you also then see the deficiencies of where other people are suffering. You can actually sort of, you know, put the two things next to each other. Here's some great things to be thankful for and here's some painful things. And your prayers work in both ways. And so you're, you're thanking God, but you're also interceding. You're saying, I wish, you know, for Beth, could you, or for my wife, could you, or for Karen, you know, and remember Judy, you know, something there, or, uh, and then we're so thankful for Mary, and isn't it, you know, and your prayers, this is where your prayers just become sort of talking to God about how the world looks to you. The hardest thing about prayer is actually staying awake to do it. And so, I mean, this is the great Monday Thursday text, right? Jesus says to the disciples, hey, could you stay here and pray for me? And he comes back, and they're like, you know, they're racked completely. <laughs> and of course, you can't, you can't pray when you're not paying attention. This is why so often if you read, you know, Desert Fathers or the Desert, Desert Mothers, we read them when we read, they, always, they talk about being aware of your world, paying attention, being awake, observing what's going on around you, not just looking to yourself, looking to other people. Why? All of that constitutes... That's the material for your prayers. And so you don't have to, um, your prayers don't have to be formal. I mean, the most important thing is that your prayers are done. And then when your prayers aren't done, uh, when you wake up again, you're forgiving of yourself and you say, well, I w wish I wouldn't have missed that. And your sorrow is just that, um, you know, not only that the Lord has asked you to pray, but also, you know, I need your prayers. And if you don't pray for me, my life's not going to be as good. And you need my prayers. And if I don't pray for you, your life's not going to be as good. So you actually do a kindness when you pray for people. You, you know, you just make other people's lives better. And that's when Jesus says, actually, great point, love, love people the way I've loved you. What does Jesus do all day? He prays for you. What does the Holy Spirit do all day? He prays for you. That's what he's doing. So if you want to live in the image of Christ, or if you want to live in the way of the Holy Spirit, Spend your time praying for other people. Now, you know, and again, this isn't kind of the finger-wagging thing, but just, if you could just set a time, you know, a morning and an evening, a couple of minutes until you get going. Just a couple of minutes. Just the, the memory of doing it. Even if it's simply the Our Father, which sort of bundles up everything. But if you can, last thing, and then we've got to go. In the early church, um, you know, we have these long, um, well, sometimes long, you know, where we pray and for this, for the church, you know, for the world, you know, for people serving overseas, for the sick, um, for those who've had blessings. You know, so we, we sort of run those out. Dun, 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 dun. Do you know that in the early church, 
Um, there was traditions in a couple of places where in the liturgy they would pray, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, and then they would add in all the things that sort of fit to Our Father. Hallowed be thy name. And then they would sort of say, what fits here? So daily bread, all your sick people would come under there. And, uh, you know, all, and forgive us our sins. That would be all the people who kind of stopped coming to church or, or um, you know, the people that we need to be forgiven. And it was really interesting. They, instead, of, instead of praying the way we do, they sort of they chopped up the Lord's Prayer, but with this very practical understanding. You can do the same thing. You know, with your Our Father, you don't just kind of scooch on to, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What does it mean for you to have a gracious Father? It means things like, in any trouble, you are being refined and you're not being destroyed, right? Or for you, it means that the, our Father means he'll take care of my brother and he'll take care of my mother because that's their Father too. It's our Father, plural. He's their Father too and that's his business and you don't have to worry about it, right? And give us this day our daily bread not only comes from nobody should be hungry in our congregation, but also we should have the Eucharist and that'll strengthen us and we need to pay attention to the world because how can people starve around us? Blah, blah, blah. See, your whole... So even if you can only struggle out the Our Father, just the importance of it wakes you up to do it. It's in the way... It's just like exercise. If you, once you start doing it, it awakens you. Once you start praying, it awakens you. And the hardest thing is just the doing of it, you know? I mean, why does Nike make a gazillion dollars with the motto that's never been changed after all these years of just do it? Why is that? Because you're not doing it, right? But you want to do it. But they make you feel good about doing it. Because, you know, don't they? I mean, they just, you know, in the same way the church, you know, wants to... I mean, think of all the good you can do. You know, you can do good to Penny today and Jeanette. God, you could do some good for my wife. You know, you could do somebody else's. You know, see, I mean, you see how this works? And that's a great kindness. So look at it as a fun thing that God allows you to do because you're part of the family. Um, there you go. Make sense? Yeah, that's the... Right. Yeah, it is. And that all comes. Oh, I was, you were so good at fix. Manipulate starts to make my tummy hurt. But it's all right. It actually is a, quite a nice article. So There's a book that goes with it, actually. All right, let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you.